0: Welcome back to the Armchair Coaching Podcast. My name is Coach Sheffer. I am the offensive line coach at Brentsville District High School in Noakesville, Virginia. And we have yet another great guest today. But before I introduce him, uh, if you are watching this on YouTube, make sure that you hit the like button and please subscribe to our channel. We would like to see our podcast grow. Uh, if you want to listen to this in podcast form instead of video form, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, as well as many others. Find the information in the description below. So our guest today is coach Charlie Scholaski. He is currently the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach at the apprentice school and is 30 years old with 12 years of coaching experience, including four at the high school level and eight at the college level. Collegiate stops prior to the apprentice school include Liberty University, Gettysburg college, and Charleston Southern. So, Coach Klasky, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on.
1: Coach, Chef, really appreciate it, man. Appreciate you having me. Looking forward to talking with you a little bit tonight. Some Feel a little bit more normal than what we're used to right now.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, we kind of – or I kind of started this podcast because I keep telling my wife I did it because I was bored. as a coach because you know you're at the apprentice school so you're in Virginia you know what's going on you know in high school we don't have high school football right now um, at least not until February Um, do you guys know when you might have a season if you have a season
1: yeah you know that's the million dollar question Um, I know you've talked to coach Davis a little bit so you know a little bit about us and with us being a true independent um, it's kind of kind of hinky for us because you know kind of the model everyone's been going to is conference only. Um, now we do have some kind of uh, informal scheduling alliances with the ODAC here in Virginia, the Division Three conference. So we've been talking to them about some things, um, reaching out to some other people as well, kind of seeing what their plans are. But um, our intention is certainly to, to try and plan in the spring. We've kind of put together a, a plan to get back and start getting the guys ready to go in January with the hopes of kicking off hopefully end of February, early March. Um, It's just going to be about who we're kicking off against, but that's certainly our intention right now.
0: Well, I really do hope you guys find a full schedule um, because you look at teams like BYU, they only have eight teams on their schedule, and they just had to postpone their game against Army this weekend. So I hope you guys don't have to go through any of that. I hope it's all positives. Um, because I have quickly becoming fans of the, the apprentice school, um, especially after talking with, uh, coach Davis, he, uh, definitely is a motivator, okay. uh, in my opinion. And I, um, uh, w- just listening to him, I was like, man, I wish I had known about the apprentice school when I was going through high school and I would have at least taken a look at it. Yeah. Um, I, this is a question I ask all of my guests. Uh, I am very fascinated by everyone's coaching story because everyone's got a, their own unique story of how they got to where they are. Um, so can you tell the listeners basically your story? So how did you eventually end up at the apprentice school?
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm, I'm the son of a ball coach and a coaching family. Uh, my dad kind of did it early on. Got out for a little bit in corporate America. And then when I was about 11 or 12, he he was when he kind of jumped back in full time. Um, So I I grew up on the sidelines, got to be around a lot of really good ball coaches. And, um, you know, just growing up playing um, and being around my dad and watching him evaluate talent and coach guys, I had a very uh, realistic view of myself as a player, to put it bluntly. I knew I was never going to get paid to play football whether that be a full scholarship or, or beyond, I knew that my playing days were going to be be somewhat limited. So um, even as a high school student, when I thought about my future, I, I thought about coaching. You know, I, I already kind of had that in my mind, um, even even from a young age. So uh, when it came time to kind of make college decisions and things like that, you know, being here in Virginia, there are so many great uh, division three opportunities and, you know, I, I, got those letters and reached out things like that. But um, again, it it came down to, am I gonna go pay to extend my career by four years when I know that's all it's gonna be? Um, Or am I gonna start doing something else? So fortunately, because of my dad's situation and some other things, I had an opportunity to go to school for for free and it was there in my hometown. So I actually started coaching high school football before I even started college, to be honest with you. So uh, kind of the way it all started was, you know, I was, I was the guy on the team that the coaches loved because I knew what to do, be where to be, but was the worst player on the best team is the way I always tell people. So, you know, you get to the senior banquet and coaches, they're bringing everybody up. They're talking about their guys. This guy was first team All-State. This guy was second team All-State. And his coach was mustering some nice things to say about me after my senior year. Uh, he spit out, and if this guy ever wants to work for me, we'd love to have him, and the next Monday, I was in his office, um, so I actually started running uh, weight weight room program for the JV team at my high school in the spring of my senior year, um, and just started, started from there and took off, um, did that for a couple years uh, while I was an undergrad, and then Nearing the end of my college career, I I went to school over at Liberty University. Um, And so my dad had moved on. He was at a different coaching opportunity. And then there was a coaching change at Liberty. Um, And just being around, being a football guy, my dad coaching there for a while, I got to know a lot of the players um, and even lived with a group of football players. And when I heard they had hired the new coach and there was going to be a players only meeting with the new head coach, um, at that time, Turner Gill. I actually snuck myself into the meeting and uh, waited for all the players to shake his hands. To it. Then I said, coach, I know you probably didn't take you long to figure this out by looking at me, but I'm not one of your players, um, but I do want to, I do want to work for you. And I want to be one of your, a student assistant for you. Um, and I guess, I guess it worked. I was a student assistant there for him my senior year. Uh, and then when I graduated, he hired me on full time as a quality control uh, did that for about two and a half years before Got my first on-the-field coaching job at Gettysburg when I coached the wide receivers and wingbacks um, and did that for a season uh, before having an opportunity to get on at uh, Charleston Southern, which we'll talk about a little bit more later as we get into kind of the offensive philosophy and how that all formed. But getting there was, was a goal, and I actually took a job coaching the corners at Charleston Southern for a season. Um, and then with some more coaching change, It's been a spring coach in the O line, then got bumped over to tight ends for the season. uh, And then things blew up as they tend to do with coaching changes. And uh, as I was looking and trying to figure out what was next, the apprentice school came along. uh, It's been an unbelievable opportunity. And before this job presented itself, I had never heard of the apprentice school and didn't understand quite what it was. You know, everybody always. You look on Scoop, it says we're Division three, and people think we're just another Division three school, but it's so much more than that, and uh, that's kind of what, what drew me in was all the unique opportunities here.
0: That's a pretty good story. Um, I told Coach Davis that I had never heard of the apprentice school until my freshman year at Bridgewater College. Um, I was, quote, red-shirting because I had, I had a bad knee injury my senior year of high school. And so I was still recovering from that and we were traveling and I can't remember if it was our first game or if it was a scrimmage. I can't remember if it was a game or a scrimmage. I'm leaning towards an actual game. Um, but it was early in the season and I was like, who in the heck is the apprentice school? I had never heard of them. And I grew up in Virginia. Um, I grew up in, uh, around the Bridgewater, the Harrisonburg area where JMU, James Madison University, that's where I grew up. And I still, I had never heard of it. And then, so I looked it up because I was like, who in the heck are we playing? And I found it fascinating. Um, but only more recently have I actually found out exactly what you guys do, which was pretty fascinating. Um, real quick, before we go into the next question, you had mentioned being a quality control could you kind of describe what life was like during that time? Because you hear that word a lot now because there's a lot that's more prevalent nowadays. So what, 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 was your job? Like what, what were your days like doing that particular job?
1: Yeah. So back then, you know, anybody that's familiar with Liberty now and goes over there now it's beautiful facilities. It's uh, all you can eat as a football coach. They've got everything. Well, when I was working there and, and we still had it good, I'm certainly not complaining. We had, Two quality controls. We had one on offense and one on defense. And um, I've always been an offensive guy, um, played offense, coached offense at high school level. Um, but both quality control jobs came open when I was there as a student assistant. And every veteran coach that I trusted, my dad and other guys that I looked up to, they said the best thing you could ever do is take the defensive quality control job. Um, and it was brutal, but it, it, they were absolutely right. And it really was. But um, to answer your question, what, what a quality control does, at least in my experience, is you, you are the guy that's, that's a week ahead. Um, you are always looking forward to the next opponent, breaking film down. Um, so for me, what that looked like is, you know, in the offseason, we took our first four opponents. And the first game, I would break down their last four games. Second game, I would break down their last three and then be ready to add one two for the next and so on. You kind of add games because our defensive coordinator I was one of the four-game reports. So basically my job, because my defensive coordinator knew that I was an offensive guy, was to, to kind of break down the film, get a real good base for who they are, and then say, hey, if I was their offensive coordinator running their scheme, this, this is what I would do to us. Um, and it, it proved to, to really benefit our defensive coordinator, having a guy that kind of saw things from the other side of the coin. We also had a really well coached scout offense because I, <laughs> I had a better understanding of what it was supposed to look like than most defensive GAs or QCs. But um, it was always kind of being, being that week ahead. Um, and so you, you look at it from kind of an hourly perspective. You break it down. So you play a game Sunday. The coaches are going to be there by noon and they want to be ready to talk about your next opponent. So usually if you're up to, up on your work, you've got one new game that you've got to do from the time your game ends to the time they get there at noon. So if we had a home game, it was, I was living the good life. Cause I could walk right in after our game, pull up the opponent's game and get going. There'd be times where we'd get back from a road game at 5.00 AM and preparation still had to start at noon. So I just didn't go home. You know, I just plugged in, got going, chopped it up um, and, and had a report ready for him to go at noon and um, then we'd kind of start working on the more, and they'd, uh, they'd break up to go game plan. And I'd start preparing the stuff for the scout team during the rest of the day, Sunday, um, Monday, you know, typical. Day. Every coach is different. Every schedule is different. But for us, it was 7 to coaches were out there around 11. I was usually out there around the door, mumble, mumble, a.m., um, and then so on and so forth till about Wednesday schedule stayed pretty much the same Wednesday coaches got out of there after practice which meant I got to leave at about 10 uh, and then Thursday was a great Thursday I got to go home for dinner and then get ready to start all over on Friday so um, but as a young single guy I mean at that time I was I was only 23 years old I, was, I didn't care about anything other than football it was, it was one of the best times of my life, as brutal as some of those long nights were. So for guys that are looking to, to really advance themselves in their knowledge and understanding of football, it's, it's a great, great way to get going. Um, there's not a lot of excitement in it. There's not a lot of glory in it. And a lot of times there's not a lot of pay in it. Um, but, man, those years were very foundational for me as a football coach.
0: It honestly kind of reminds me of my freshman year at college um, because technically I was part of the team, but I was not allowed to practice uh, because of the they had different rules in D three when it when it came to uh, redshirting. So if I had practiced, I would have lost a year of eligibility. And so they basically turned me into a camera guy, uh, and so I filmed practice, and I was very familiar with how a practice schedule worked. Um, I became very familiar with how how to set up cameras, how to do an end zone camera. I also uh, was doing a work study program, and it was helping paint the fields, all the sports fields for all the games. And so I learned how to do all of that. And, you know, at the time, I was thinking, I'm just doing this until I can start practicing and, you know, stay in shape and all that. And But now looking back on it, it was like that was training to be like a coach, basically, Uh, like a high school coach, because those are things that high school coaches do um, without pay. (laughs) So um, I was just getting used to that. And lo and behold, my first coaching job, since I didn't have any experience, the guy was like, you're going to be our film coach this year. So I "I already already have experience doing that. So I kind of I, I, I definitely get sort of where the quality control comes from Uh, because I feel like a little bit I was almost like a quality control coach as a player, which is weird. Um, So we mentioned offense a little bit, and I am an offensive guy as well. That's what I personally prefer. Um, I did coach on defense the last couple years, which was the best thing that could have ever happened to me football-wise, kind of like you said. I learned the defenses – I learned how to read defenses and what they were doing and learned how to think like a defensive coordinator. And so now that I'm on the offensive side of the ball, the offensive coordinator that I work for, he's like, all right, he goes, Sheffer, what are they, what's that defense doing right there? What are they going to do to us? And I'm the first guy he always goes to. So I'm like, I think that made me a better coach doing that. But I still love talking offense and uh, Coach Davis, in his interview, mentioned that you guys run a spread option. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I think that's the best way to describe it. And I always, especially talking to recruits, I always make sure I put the word spread first because if you say option, all of a sudden they go to Navy, Georgia Tech in their heads and, and they'll start tuning you out. But um, it is very, very far removed from that. We, In my two years as an offensive coordinator here, we have not gone under center once. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it definitely doesn't look anything like that. Um, it, it is essentially spread formations. We're going to look like a traditional spread team, but we're just going to employ triple option principles to figure out where we're going, how we're attacking. So if you've been around any triple option people, one thing you're always going to hear is numbers, angles, grass. And that's, that's a huge part of what we do. We're looking for the numbers advantage first, which To me, kind of just the way my mind works, when you think of the old school triple option Navy wing back, so you got a big old fullback, two wings, two wide receivers, okay? We're now in a balanced formation, okay? So if you're in a balanced formation offensively, the defense can then also align in a balanced formation if they choose to, okay? So now you've taken away numbers because now it's balanced both ways then if they're balanced formationally, you've taken away angles. So now we're just talking about running to grass. Well, the reality is if you're a triple option team, the reason most people run triple option is to eliminate the talent gap. So if you're gonna line up in a balanced formation, they're gonna line up in a balanced defense. You already know you're running the triple option because you have less talent, but now the bulk of your strategy is outrun them to space. you're, you're being to beat your head against the wall. So what we do is we align in more traditional formations that are usually either two by one, three by one, where we're not balanced. Or we have, if we're in a two by two, we have the ability to motion to a two by one or th- three by one. Now we make defenses make choices. Now they have to shift either in the front in the box where they have to shift with the secondary. And now regardless of which way it is, we've created a number or, or angles advantage somewhere. They can't play us balanced if we're not at a balanced formation. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the premise of it is to make put defenses where we want them. And then whatever it is, we'll, we'll go where you don't want us to go. Um, we're not going to beat our head against the wall saying, no, we want to run power behind this guard. Because um, if they line up in a way that isn't conducive to that we need to, to be able to do something else um so if we're really applying that numbers angles grass principle but from spread formations and we are we're a little more balanced run to pass especially in the the new age of all this rpo stuff because now instead of a pitch you can throw a bubble or you can throw a hitch and now it's a, an rpo but really all rpo is is triple option. I know nobody, nobody in the NFL wants to hear that because they'll never run triple option in the NFL, but they're actually, they actually are.
0: <laughs> well, I would kind of say that uh, there's a couple teams who, well, if you look, look at the Ravens, I think they do run a little, a uh, little bit of kind of the triple option uh, style. They're not obviously under center flex bone because if they did that, people would riot. <laughs> um mm-hmm but I am fascinated by what you guys are doing uh, because I'm a lot of people will either try to say that I'm an option guy or I am a wing T guy because I love those offenses. Yes, I do love those offenses, but I used to write a blog. Um, I haven't done it any anymore because um, I just don't have the time to write that often. It was called obsessed with offense. That's, all offenses. I just love offensive football. So when people talk about spread option, the first thing that comes to mind is um, a couple of years ago New Mexico's offense. Yeah, I used to love New Mexico's offense, um, but it seems like you're more in like kind of traditional. It looks like uh, two by two trips, the traditional spread looks, but you're running you know, you, you, you call them RPOs, but like you said, it's, it's, it's option football. Um, now, cause I'm an offensive line guy. Uh, you know, you don't have to give away too much here. Are you guys running, uh, zone concepts up front or are you trying to run, um, like the triple, like the traditional veer concepts or is it something different? Yes. The Both
1: is yes. Yeah. Okay. That's, so one of the things that has made this thing unique, and it's not just me, this is dating back to when I was at Charleston Southern and I can name drop this one now. Cause it's what they're running at coastal Carolina, who just had a really good day against Kansas. Well, one of the things that is kind of unique about what we do is being in the gun and running both zone read triple stuff and veer triple because and this this is, goes back to as a defensive quality control, you got to coach your linebackers to fit kind of one or two ways. Either they're going to straight gap fit, which is what you want to do versus like veer triple, or they're going to do what a lot of people call jump fits, where essentially they're going to cheat a gap over to account for the zone going this way and the quarterback pulling. So as defensive coordinators, they're going to get on when they see a triple reading team. They're going to say, okay, are they doing veer or are they doing zone? How do we want to tell our backers to fit? Well, most teams, especially at our level, they're not going to have the mobility to have their backers fitting straight up sometimes and jump fitting other times. They're going to tell them to do it one way or the other. So a drive or two into the game, we we can usually figure that out. And if they're going to jump fit, we're going to rip them with veer. If they're going to straight fit, we're going to get them with zone. So it's not so much we run 15 reps of zone and 15 reps of Veer a game, but I promise you, I'm not making this up. At the end of 2018, we had 116 reps of zone and 112 reps of Veer throughout the season because it just so happened that it, it mirrored itself up naturally through the course of the season. So. um that's kind of—it's not so much a secret because if anybody watches our film, they'll figure it out. But that's that's sort of the secret that makes this thing a little bit tough: is you go here, we go there; you go there, we go here, kind of thing, and playing that cat and mouse with where those backers are going to fit.
0: Do you guys ever have any um, traditional wing backs or like a Y or an H back in your offense?
1: Yeah. So. We we try to me it's gonna be based more so on personnel. It's gonna be who we have at the time. If I've got a kid, like our first year we had a kid that was really more like a big running back, but we had in place some of that H back stuff, and you're able to do some really good stuff with that sniffer guy. Last year we, we didn't really have it, so we motioned our slot receivers a little bit more, jets and orbit motions and all that fun stuff. Um, so to me it's it's all about who you got in the stable at the time. I'm not going to ever try and fit a square peg in a round hole because um, I'm kind of like you. I like all offense. I like whichever offense moves the ball down the field. So there's no formation or play that I'm just so tied to that I'm going to force it down their throats.
0: All right, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. Um, Last play of the game, fourth and goal. You got maybe two yards to go. What play are you calling?
1: Yeah, so um, I steal this one from a guy I really respect, a guy named Brandon Streeter. He's a quarterback's coach over at Clemson. And this play made a guy named Deshaun Watson and almost went Heisman. So, going to get in 10 personnel, three by one. We'd call it uh, Flush Trey. And uh, we're going to call what we call uh, tray right 60 Disco Stick. So, essentially, we got a stick concept front side with a quarterback draw in the box with the back leading up. So we read that Mike linebacker, if he's hanging in the box, we've probably got our stick. The only thing they can really do to take that away is roll down and play true man. And if they are going to cover down with man, our X has got to be able to win backside. If they do play straight man and they only have a six-man box, we actually have six for six. We got our five O 0 lineman in the back and the quarterback. So he's just got to sell the stick a little bit more before he goes. But... Really, we're going to read that Mike linebacker. If we can peg the stick, we peg the stick. If he buzzes out of the box or aligns out of the box, show and go, run the quarterback, draw. It's what I call it all the time, not just on fourth and goal, but one of my favorite plays. It's hard to deal with.
0: So, what's the story behind your offensive scheme? So, how did you come to the spread option offense?
1: Yeah. So, Again, it all goes back to those first two years as a defensive quality control, where as an offensive guy working on defense, my job was to sit there and look at different offenses every day. And so every year I'd get to watch 12 different offenses. And so at Liberty, and I talked about it, how it's, it's kind of blown up now, but even back then when we were an FCS program in the Big South, we we were kind of the the haves instead of the have-nots. You know, we we were pretty well taken care of. We had nice facilities. We recruited pretty well, um, and then there was another school, Charleston Southern, who was not a have and did not recruit very well. Um, that was that was everybody's stat game. That was young guys were going to get in and get some reps, um, and then they hired a new head coach, a guy named Jamie Chadwell, um, who who came in and started running this funky gimmicky offense that everybody thought would would never work and um, so year one they they win I think 10 games his first year at Charleston Southern Charleston Southern had won 10 games the three years before that um, and we went to play them and you know we still kind of overwhelmed them a little bit talent wise and I think the final of that game might have been 52 to 10 and uh, at that point we said oh this offense you know it's just it's just a gimmick it tricks some other teams but it's not all that. The next year, they come back to our place, and with 30 seconds to go in the game, they're going for two to tie it to try and take us to overtime. And end up, they, they don't get it. We win 38-36, escape with our lives, and we, we were embarrassed to have a game that close with what used to be the old Charleston Southern. And at that moment, I knew that this, this was something real um, and kind of set out on a mission, like, man, I got to get to know those guys. I got to – if I could get on that staff someday, that'd be that'd be a dream come true, um, which led me that a couple years later, um, they had a job come open, coaching their corners for $7,000 and a meal plan, and I jumped on it as quickly as I could um, and got my butt down to Charleston and even coaching on the other side of the ball that first year. I was able to soak up so much. Um, and really what, what kind of drew me to it was they, they were doing what they were doing at Charleston Stinking Southern, where they don't have anything. They're getting whoever us and Coastal and Gardner-Webb didn't want. And now they're, they're churning this thing out. And, and what I realized is there's more of those programs than there are Liberties or Floridas or Alabamas, more often than not as a coach, whether it's at the high school level or the college level, you're going to coach at a have not more than you're going to have the opportunity to coach at a have. So to me, it was a great equalizer. And um, something that uh, Jamie Chadwell used to talk a lot about uh, Charleston Southern in recruiting was niche recruiting. Um, And in this offense, you're kind of recruiting a different kind of guy. So instead of I always joke around when the team in the sec decides they want to line up in the eye and run power, Well, you're not going to out Alabama Alabama. If you're trying to recruit the same players and run the same offense as the best team in your league, you have no chance. You need to do something different, recruit differently, run something. So a big part of it started up front for us. We, we, We did not offer offensive linemen that were over 300 pounds because if they were over 300 pounds and moved well enough to do what we were doing, they were going to Alabama. They were going to Florida and all that. So we were taking kids that were fat tight ends and taking kids that were 6'4", uh, 240, um, and uh, kids that could really run, kids that could really move. And up front, we really were like a traditional Army-Navy triple option team. It was, it was everywhere else where we were kind of more spread-like with the dual threat quarterback and some big old receivers on the outside, some shifty guys in the slot and, uh, and some really talented backs that we ended up getting there. So um, the niche recruiting and just being a little different, being a little thinking outside the box um, was kind of what drew me to it. Cause at the end of the day, you're going to have to work with less more often than not in this business.
0: Yeah. So you kind of mentioned it, the, uh, if you try to line up, in the same offense that an Alabama runs and you don't have the horses to match, it's going to end up being a track race and whoever's got the best horses is going to win. Unfortunately, that's just how how it works. Um, And it kind of reminds me, we had a uh, program profile episode where we talked about Navy, or both Army and Navy, uh, different episodes. And we asked the same question in both. Would these teams be as successful as they are running a different offense and the answer was no probably not um maybe navy could pull off maybe they could pull off something like air raid because it's not too far off from triple option principles and philosophy but they wouldn't be as good um army no definitely not they're the best at what they do right now so i definitely agree with what you were talking about there Um, So we're going to switch a little from X's and O's and more to culture and philosophy. Can you describe your uh, coaching philosophies and leadership styles and where do you think that these came from?
1: Yeah, unequivocally, I know where they come from and a lot of it is being around my dad growing up and um, it's funny because as I was kind of thinking through this stuff to talk to you, so much of my on the field x's and o's philosophy me me and my pops couldn't be further apart right we kind of came up doing different things all that but what i really realized is growing up i really kind of soaked in the things he was doing off the field the way he was with his guys the way he recruited um kind of those those sort of things and um if i had to summarize it briefly the best way to do is just players first Um, this is This is not, uh, some people call it, you know, entertainment business. Some people call it, um, you know, all these other things. It is a service business. If you're a coach, a full time coach, especially, and high school coaches that teach and coach to another degree, you're in the service industry and it's the service of of young men. Um, And unfortunately, and this is going to sound crazy, the way salaries have skyrocketed in college coaching, it started to attract some people that that's not why they do it. They really love football and they see it as a great way to, to make a buck. But um, the guys that are really truly exceptional um, are the guys that are in it for the kids because kids know uh, you can't, you can't fake it. Um, you can't, there's not enough sugar. You can sugarcoat it with. So if you don't really care about the kids, they're always going to see through that. And, you know, there's the old saying, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, and so for, there's, you can't really fake it, and the guys that, that are in it for the wrong reasons, they, they may last a little while, but they, they usually end up, end up out. But if I had to summarize it into one thing, it would be players first, um, just serving your guys, doing what's best for them as young men first and then as student athletes.
0: All right, so on our podcast, we talk a lot about college football. And obviously, in the news with college football right now, it's all about how the different conferences are handling the COVID situation. Um, as of the as of this recording right now, we still haven't had word on the Big Ten, and we're assuming the Pac-12 is probably not playing at all this fall. No news yet. Um, What are your own thoughts about how these conferences, and you can also talk about D3 and um, other teams that you guys typically play. What are your thoughts on how they are handling the pandemic?
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the million dollar question right now. And I don't, I don't know that anybody really has the right answers. The reality is so much of it has come down to resources. Um, the, the coaches at the smaller schools want to do just as many things for their players as the coaches at Alabama do. They just, they don't have the, the means to do it. Um, you know, it's been a little frustrating kind of when you pull back and look at the whole national picture, because like I said, the guys, I consider myself in this group and a lot more that are in it for the kids, players first. Um, I don't know that the people making these decisions are looking at it through that lens. And um, overall, the number one thing I saw that was incredibly disappointing to me, and I'm not going to take it to a political place with you, because I know that's not what anybody wants, but somebody pulled up a map of the red and blue states in our country, Republicans and Democrats. And then right next to it, they put a map of which states are playing high school football. And the maps were identical of red states, blue states, playing versus not playing and and that's not to say that democrats are right republicans are wrong or vice versa what it shows me is people are making decisions for the wrong reasons right wrong or indifferent they let their political allegiance leak into their decision about how they're going to deal with football and so um to me that's really disappointing i think there's there's evidence going both ways and if people come out and say you know what I really see it this way, this is my decision, I'm fine with that because thankfully I'm not in a position where I have to make a decision like that. But what what played out isn't so much that. It isn't that people looked at the evidence and really thought hard about it. It's kind of like people just sort of towed the party line. And unfortunately, the, the kids are the ones suffering. Because, um, you know, at that level, there's no financial burden. There's no, it's just it's, it's kind of a matter of opinion in reality. And um, I think if if they named me Emperor of America tomorrow and told me to make a decision, I, w- I would just want people to have choices. I think that's why people like living in America is because we have the freedom to make choices. And if Johnny wants to play and Jimmy doesn't, then Johnny should be able to play and Jimmy sh- shouldn't have to. I think we've seen a lot of different things, whether it's this or Dating back to when CTE was popping up and football was kind of being questioned, not yet have I ever seen a young man be dragged onto a field and forced to play football. So that's not part of our culture. We've never done that. Um, so I think people that want to play and whether it's minors they have a conversation with their parents and parents make a decision for their kid or 18 and older, they can they can vote, they can go to war. I believe they should be able to decide if if they want to play football or not. But um, I think to me, that's, I think coaches, the coaches that are either not playing or are playing from what I've been able to tell coaches are are doing everything they can. And I've seen a lot of great stuff, coaches that are playing, being super cautious, super careful, and coaches that aren't playing, finding ways to still take care of their guys. Um, So you know how it is, man. coaches just naturally we're problem solvers. It's what we do. Um, So I've seen a whole lot of that and it's been, it's been great for our community unfortunately so many of the decisions have have been taken out of our hands by people that are so many tiers above that that they're so far removed that they don't really haven't been on the ground level in a while
0: all right and um again again talking about college uh, colleges and all that stuff do you have any colleges that you root for um besides the apprentice school and um, are there any coaches out there that you would call an inspiration?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So kind of growing up in a coaching family, you kind of mute that stuff a little bit. So everyone in my family besides me actually went to the University of Florida. So, kind of growing up that was kind of there and now my dad is actually back there working so i can kind of unabashedly be be a gator fan on saturdays um but to have so many friends that are that are all over the place doing doing great jobs at so many schools that it really just comes down to rooting for guys you, you know and care about and i mentioned those guys at coastal most of that staff i've, I've had the opportunity to work with Uh, best friends over at Western Illinois, got a buddy at Liberty Stummy, just guys that you you form connections with over the course of the year. And and it sounds silly, but basically every Saturday, you're rooting for them to keep their job. So um, if before I ever had family back at Florida, if one of my friends had been coaching against Florida, I'd certainly be cheering for them because I'm more worried about the people I'm close with, the people I care about, than a particular logo Um, but yeah, you know, got, I got a little, little orange and blue trickling through tricking through the veins a little bit.
0: And, uh, are there any like college coaches that you look up to like specifically, or you can even name like high school coaches or anyone that you've been around that you find are an inspiration to you and you look up to.
1: Yeah. So, As far as on a personal level, somebody I actually know and have experienced, uh, my high school head coach, Frank Rocco, is without a doubt the best I've ever been around. And um, his record proves it. But um, probably the biggest thing that impacted me was him being willing to kind of throw me in there at a young age and and let me swim. And um, I was 18 years old calling plays for the JV team. And he wasn't over my shoulder. He was just kind of letting me rock. And um, for me, what that did for, for my confidence as a young football coach, because I saw him as, man, this is the greatest high school coach that's ever lived, whether that's true or not. And for him to have confidence in me, it, it, well, Frank believes in me, and I must know what I'm doing. And I've kinda, that's kind of stayed with me. Um, as far as a guy that you know, I don't have a relationship with, not work for anything like that. I've always really admired Chris Peterson. Um, the job that he did at Boise State. I mean, it, it's it's unprecedented. There's not really anything like it. Um, when you pull up the winning percentages and things like that, it, he's kind of neck and neck with, with Nick Saban. The difference is one of them is using Cadillacs. The other one's using donkeys comparatively. Um, so he, he did an unbelievable job and just kind of his demeanor, kind of the way he carried himself. Um, it just kind of Showed me that, you know what, you don't, you don't have to be the guy that's screaming and yelling all the time and spit flying everywhere and losing your cool, you, you can be calm, you can be collected, and, and just kind of go about your business and take care of things. And um, I, I just always really respected him. And um, one, one thing I heard him say, I got to hear him speak, at my very first convention, when I was 18 years old, I got to go to the AFCA convention for the first time, and he was the, the keynote guy. Um, and the one bullet point I remember that I still kind of keep in the back of my mind for my offenses said, look complicated, but be simple. Um, and I think that kind of is a big part of, of what we do because we'll run 12 different formations in a game, but we may only run three or four run schemes and two or three different protections with four or five concepts, but we're going to look complicated. There's going to be all these formations, all these shifts and motions and then be simple for our guys. And if you go back, if you go watch an old Boise State game, that's exactly what they were doing. They were shifting and motioning, and then they were running inside zone and uh, keeping it simple for their guys, but making everybody else's head spin.
0: Comes back to that, uh, the, the KISS philosophy, the keep it simple, stupid. You know, right. and as long as the kids know what they're doing and they're confident, you should be just fine. Uh, the last question I have for you today is a pretty simple one. Um, at least it's a short one. It is, why the apprentice school? Um, and you can kind of take this in any direction you want. You can take it as, why why was the apprentice school right for you as a coach? Or um, what are some ways that you say why a young player should come play for the apprentice school? Or you can answer both questions if you'd like. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, because, you, know, you know, you've already talked to my head coach. So if I don't have even a little recruiting in here, I'll probably get fired. But I'll start with me personally. So um, I've gotten to coach kind of at a, a bunch of different levels, um, Liberty being kind of upper echelon, FCS when I was there and now FBS, going to Gettysburg College, which was a super high academic liberal arts school, and then going to Charleston Southern, which was kind of middle of the road FCS by the time I got there, but was still kind of lower tier FCS in terms of resources and stability and all that kind of stuff. So seeing all that different stuff, one thing that kind of stuck with me and, you know, I, I never want to talk bad about any level of football because there's great football being played at, at all those levels. And we had competitive tough games everywhere I've ever coached. So it's not about that. The one thing that, that kind of, Bothered me about coaching at the Division three level was was off the field stuff. In that there were kids that would come and they would do absolutely everything right. They'd do everything you asked them as a coach. They would do everything you asked them to do in the classroom. They were great citizens on campus, and they would end up going home because of money. Um, and and that always as a guy that if I'm going to sit here and say that I'm a players first guy, if I care more about the players as people than I do as, about them as football players or and especially more than I do about them as tuition checks, um, that, that part kind of always irked me, rubbed me the wrong way, where I'd be recruiting a young man and, hey, coach, I have an opportunity to come to you guys or I have an opportunity to go here for $20,000 less. And my job was to try and convince that kid to take $20,000 more out in student debt and loans just so he could come play for me. I'm, I'm not that good of a football coach. So um, all that being said, kind of going to the Division three level, I, I really didn't want to do that part again. I really didn't want to do the salesman-y kind of, oh, student loans aren't that bad. You can pay them off and such a – I didn't want to live that part again. So when, when he first told me about that part of the apprentice school, that every single one of our kids was 100% tuition-free, and we didn't even have a financial aid office. There's nowhere to give the apprentice school money if you want to as a student. No FASFA, um, all that stuff was, was super appealing to me. The other part was, was their ability to, to earn and take care of themselves. Our kids, when they come in as a freshman, on average our freshmen make about $35,000 their freshman year, and they're making about $65,000 by the time they're a senior. Even at Charleston Southern, where we had kids, they'd be on full scholarship, maybe 75% scholarship. but well, we also had walk-ons and guys that were just finding a way to just pay their tuition check just so they could stay there. And I didn't really know, where, where's Jimmy sleeping tonight? What's Jimmy eating tonight? And those were the guys, you know, you tried to sneak them an extra plate after a home-cooked meal, things like that. I have never had to worry about that at the apprentice school. Our players are eating better than I do. They're sleeping better than I do. Every upperclassman on our team actually makes more than I do. Um, so it's it's never been something I have to worry about here. And I know that our guys have a future if they take care of their business. I don't have to worry about them fighting this job market and struggling to, if they pick the wrong major and they get a degree that doesn't have a lot of jobs, But what are they going to do? Our guys are set for life if they want it. And there's really, there's only five schools in the country that can guarantee you a job when you graduate. The other four, they shoot at you when you go to work They're the military schools. Okay. Our place is the only one that's going to, we're going to pay for your whole education. We're going to pay you while you're getting the education. And then we're going to have a guaranteed job for you at a fortune 500 company when you graduate. It, there's, there's some tough parts. You know, it's not for everybody. It's a little bit hard, but it, that's – I mean, I had never heard of it before. I thought it was too good to be true. Um, but for our kids, it is, it is as advertised. It is as good as it gets. All
0: right. Well, I really appreciate you coming on tonight, Coach. And um, I'm going to give you a moment here to kind of voice any final thoughts that you have because there are – A lot of coaches out there who are either they're going through a season and they're dealing with things that they've never dealt with before, or they're not going through a season and they're again dealing with things they've never dealt with before. Um, And so there's not a lot of positivity going around right now. Do you have any positive thoughts, any um, kind of, you know, words of wisdom for those coaches out there that might be listening?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I can I can certainly relate to that. And, you know, it really, really didn't hit me until college football came back and was on TV. And I remember watching that first game and I was so anxious because I was watching a college football game and I kept thinking, did I get my scripts done? Am I ready for practice tomorrow? Am I, oh, wait, I don't have practice tomorrow. I don't have scripts to do. And um, this this whole COVID season, you know, mental health has kind of been the, the thing for a couple years now. People have been talking about this is kind of the first time I've, I've sort of had my own little bout with it um, and just kind of trying to wrap my head around, you know, we we talk to kids all the time about being more than just a football player, not putting your identity in being a football player. And, and sometimes we got to tell ourselves that as coaches. Um, you know, for me, uh, it comes down to my faith. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in Jesus. And I'm just kind of refocusing myself on that, that, you know, that's, That's who I am. Being a football coach is is what I do, and it's what I love, and I love being around the guys, and I love the game, but it's not who I am. So COVID can't take away who I am. Uh, Canceled season can't take away who I am because Jesus tells me who I am, not a game, Um, but there's definitely some, you know, some pain, some sadness that that goes away with it because it's the first time I've ever had time off like this in, in August and September. And sometimes I just don't really know what to do with myself, but, um, for anybody else that's kind of watching and feeling that same way, just remember that whether you're a player or coach, it's not who you are, it's what you do and it's something you love, but, but you're a lot more than that. And, um, COVID or hurricanes or whatever it is, none of that can take away who you are and the value you have as a child of God. Um, just know that if you need anything, if you need somebody to talk to, you know, guys like Coach Chef, guys like myself, we're, we're always willing to talk to you. And coaches got to stick together, man. It's 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 tough enough out there for us. Everybody else wants us to get fired, so we gotta we gotta at least stick together with each other and help each other through the tough stuff.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a brotherhood. So I yes, um, well, Coach, thank you for coming on tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being such a great guest.
1: I appreciate it coach. Thanks for having me and look forward to tuning in to your millions of podcasts to go.
0: (laughs) We can only hope, right? All right. Well, this has been the armchair coaching podcast, and this is coach Sheffer signing off.